This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Proverbial is brought to you by Scully Academy, where you can discover restful, classical learning online. Their interactive online courses for grades K-12 through pair classical curriculum with a restful, or scholate, pedagogy, leading to deeper student engagement and learning that lasts. Choose from subject areas such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, science, and more, all taught by master instructors. Registration for the 2021-2022 courses are now open. Head over to www.scholeacademy.com. That's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com to learn more and to enroll. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 55, Horace the Bear. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. Money can't buy you happiness. Once more. Money can't buy you happiness. Unlike... The grass is always greener on the other side. Money can't buy you happiness is a proverb which is often contested. And that has more to do with the circumstances in which the proverb is usually spoken than with the saying itself. There are two parts to any proverb. There's the saying itself, and then there's the sort of occasion that prompts people to utter the proverb. And that's half of the proverb. Half of the proverb is the circumstances in which it's said. 
the same proverb said in two separate circumstances may be true and false. It's often the case that the shorter the proverb, the more it depends on circumstance. Uh, for instance, life goes on is an apt thing to say in some circumstances, um, but not in all circumstances. Uh, we never say life goes on, you know, when a friend wins the lottery or secures a new job that pays fantastically. We say life goes on when someone wrecks their car or breaks their leg or loses a job. Those are the circumstances that prompt the proverb, and those are half of the meaning of the proverb. Money can't buy you happiness. I would say that there are two occasions that prompt people to say this. The first sort of occasion is when rich people kill themselves, which is not uncommon, today especially. People with high incomes are far more likely to commit suicide than people with low incomes. So whenever we discover that rich people are miserable, we often say money can't buy you happiness. But it's not just when the rich exhibit self-hatred that we say this. We're also apt to say money can't buy you happiness to people on the verge of undertaking something physically or spiritually risky in order to get money. When I say spiritually risky, I mean decisions to spend a lot of time away from your family, away from your home, away from your children. Or the decision to quit going to church, even if only for a short time, for the sake of money. Now, I'll qualify this. Um, some men have to leave their families for long periods of time. I mean men in the military, say. There are certain lines of work, uh, especially those lines of work that pertain to national defense, uh, the preservation of human life, any sort of job that's involved in keeping hearts beating might involve spending long periods of time away from family and home. But this is not the only reason why men decide to spend a lot of time away from home. There are plenty of people who willingly take up work that involves spending a lot of time away from home. And the reason why these decisions are usually justified is money or for some kind of ease of life. It'll be easier for you. It'll be more convenient for you if I spend a lot of time away from home. And these are spiritual risks justified on the grounds that they can shore up financial risks. I remember uh, hearing when I was younger Actually, I think I was in my teen, I think I was in my teenage years when I heard this for the first time. And it was a, a sort of a saying, a sort of long view of romance. And it was, before you marry, the devil will try to get you together. And after you marry, the devil will try to keep you apart. 
a lot of wisdom there. And I'm not, of course, um, you know, casting shade or suspicion on men that have to leave their families for a year to go to Qatar or uh, some kind of uh, overseas mission to secure the safety of our country. That seems like a separate thing. At the same time, those kind of uh, tours are called hardship tours, leaving your family for a long period of time. My father was in the military, had to spend a year away uh, when I was younger. And anybody who's undergone that sort of thing knows that it's never great. And I would say that the, the man who has had to leave his family for a year uh, sort of raises an eye at somebody who does it willingly. Like, do you know what you're getting into? I had to do that. That somebody would willingly do it seems rather odd. Many, many years ago, I knew a man, a young man, who married, had five children rather quickly, and then disappeared from church for a long time. It was almost a year that I went without seeing him. Didn't see him in church. And he'd been kind of a friend, kind of a friend of a friend at church. And I didn't see him for a year. And then I met him in a video store, I think. I ran into him. And we knew each other well enough that we had to have a little conversation. It would be odd to encounter him after a year, to wave at him, and to not engage in some sort of conversation. And I'm sure he was not eager to have this conversation. When you quit going to church for a year, you kind of don't want to run into anyone from church because they're going to ask you the question that I asked him, where have you been? Why have you not been in church? The answer that he gave was fascinating. He said, I have been building a house. He said, I've been building it by myself. He was, as you can tell, an industrious man. And I work during the week, and the weekend's really the only time that I have to work on it. And I'm trying to build it all by myself. I'm trying to do it without going into debt. And so that's where I've been on Sunday mornings, laboring to build this home. Now, at the time that I heard this, I was in my mid-twenties. I was newly married at the time. I thought, huh, well, if you're going to quit going to church for a year, that seems about the best possible reason for it. You want to build a home for your family. You want to do it without going into debt. I mean, for all the reasons that people give for not going to church for a year. That one seemed about as noble as I could imagine. That man finished building that house and got divorced shortly thereafter. From then on, whenever people give me reasons for not going to church, and it doesn't even really matter what those reasons are, I think of that guy. I thought of that guy when I stopped going to church because COVID restrictions were keeping me out of church. At that time, I had 
as legitimate a reason for not going to church as I can imagine. I'm not allowed to go to church. But even though I was following the rules, I still thought, this is a little risky. This is a bit dangerous. Money can't buy you happiness. There are people who scoff at this claim, but not poor people. The people who think money can buy happiness are rarely poor. Poor people tend to be happier than rich people, which means the poor are never trying to buy happiness. People who are decently settled in the world, at least so far as finances go, are far more likely to try to buy happiness than the poor are. So when someone says money can't buy you happiness and someone says, huh, tell that to the poor, I think you don't really know poor people. How long has it been since you were poor? Have you ever been in a position that you had to sell your possessions to buy food? I have. Money can't buy you happiness. Money can't buy you happiness doesn't mean that money doesn't matter. And there's a thousand ways in which people misunderstand this proverb. Money can't buy you happiness doesn't mean money can't buy you food. Money can buy you all sorts of things that matter. Food matters. Shelter matters. Money can buy you pleasure. And that's one of the most common ways in which the proverb is misunderstood. Money can't buy you happiness. And the cynic says, well, tell that to somebody who's eating at the best restaurants in the world every night. Look at these happy photos of himself that he posts on social media. Looks pretty happy. Looks pretty happy eating the best food in the world every night. But money can't buy you contentment. It can buy you pleasure. But not all pleasure is satisfying. There are plenty of people who are committed to pleasure and are absolutely miserable. The pursuit of pleasure and the ability to say, I have had enough pleasure, are two very different things. As Boethius says, no man is rich who shakes and groans, convinced that he needs more. Or, in the words of Christopher Wallace, in the same way that very few people who have tattoos only have one, very few people trying to buy happiness are trying to buy it for the first time. You ever notice this? Most people with tattoos have quite a few. Getting a tattoo is apparently not very satisfying. As soon as you've got one, it seems that you want a lot of them. Getting a tattoo is the fast track to wanting to get more tattoo. I think the same thing is true of people who are trying to buy happiness. It can't be your first time. You try to buy happiness, you buy something. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you content. And as opposed to concluding that happiness can't be bought, what we do is we assume that we bought the wrong thing. So you assume that this pair of shoes is going to make you happy. You assume that this 
technological gadget is going to make you happy and that you can't be happy until you have this thing. Then you get it and you're bored with it rather quickly. And you assume, well, the problem was I bought the wrong thing. So you buy another. That one thing didn't give me meaning, so I need another. It's hard to remember that everything you've ever bought, aside from perhaps an engagement ring, is something that you've ultimately become tired of or bored with or indifferent to. Consider all the things that once upon a time meant the world to you that you sell for a cut rate five years later. Years ago, maybe I was 21. I was at a record store. I was at Hastings as I often was in my early 20s and later on. And I saw that they had they had a CD there. They had a CD that had just come up for sale and it was an oddity. It was a double disc import from England, I think. And I was really into This is so lame. I was really into trance music at the time. And this was this Paul Oakenfold double album recordings from live recordings uh, from a a famous club. And what was weird about the CD was that it was $60. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It was the most expensive new CD I had ever seen. I mean, I was maybe aware that there were weird collector's items that you could buy online, like odd pressings of the soundtrack to the very first Batman movie by Danny Elfman, and that they went for some astronomical price, but it was because they were old or they were some weird issue of them. But to see a $60 CD, I was aghast. And... Paul Oakenfold was my favorite DJ at the time. And I was broke. I mean, I worked at a, I think I worked at a pizza restaurant making like $6 an hour. And I didn't work very much. I worked like 30 hours a week, maybe. But as soon as I saw this, and again, this is before the era of streaming music, I was like, I have to hear this. I have to get $60 to buy this. I wouldn't pay $60 for it today. It's the most I've ever paid for a CD. And of course I had to have it. I forget what of my stuff I sold to buy this thing. It was like the pearl of great price. Have to have it. So I took a little bit of my paycheck. I don't know why I felt such a rush to get this. There was no one else in Moscow, Idaho, who was going to pay $60 for the CD. I think it probably took me four or five days to put together the money for this. I mean, some, think about this. Some people put the money together 
to make bail for their brother who's in jail or something like that. I was trying to put this money together to buy this CD. A CD. $60 was really at the time close to half of what I made in a week, maybe a third of what I made in a week. So I got this money together. I bought the CD. I took it home and I listened to it. And you know what? It was awesome. It was as good as I knew it would be. And that didn't stop me from selling it two years later for $2 for something that I wanted even more. What a horrible economy. And yet, I swear, I've done that over and over and over in my life. Sold many things to buy a new thing and then liquidated that thing soon thereafter to buy something that I wanted even more. And it's not as though my life has been getting more and more pleasant year by year by year as I acquire better and better stuff. I just want different stuff. I get bored with it nonetheless. Money can't buy you happiness. When I think of this proverb, I the best explanation of this proverb is a story that involves buying something. I think I've probably told this story before. It's a story I remember on a daily, on a nightly basis. Forgive me if you've heard this one before. This is old man's story hour. Probably nine years ago, eight or nine years ago. No, wait, it can't have been that long. Uh, I'll say like seven, seven and a half years ago. I had just received an unexpected sum of money in the mail. Not a lot, $150. And with this money, I decided to take my family out for dinner. And we went to a restaurant that was near a Goodwill store. And when we were done with dinner, this Goodwill store was open for a few minutes longer. And I tell my two little children, one of them two at the time, one of them four at the time, when we go into this Goodwill, I'll buy you whatever you want. I make this Herodian promise up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. And I figured with all of this money to spend, what is anybody in my household going to find that's going to deplete all of this money? What are they going to ask for? And so they go in, my wife and my two children, and they're looking around. And when I had made this promise of, I'll buy you whatever you want, the promise had really been made in terms of price. And I hadn't been thinking about quality. So they go in, and I look around, and my wife looks around, and we, you know, shepherd the children around the store. And Camilla, who's four at the time, chooses from this massive bin of stuffed animals a small blue Care Bear and says that this is what she wants. Now, I have not ever been a fan of 
licensed characters, as they're sort of generically called in our time. My children have seen almost no Disney movies. They don't own any backpacks, any folders, any anything with, you know, famous cartoon cats grinning on the front or uh, animated fish with big eyes smiling at you, representing uh, Pixar films. They don't own any cars stuff. They They don't own any of that stuff. They never watch that stuff. And so my my child brings me this Care Bear, a used Care Bear. And the thing is, you know, about as big as a mm, half a loaf of bread. It's as big as a small loaf of bread. That's a weird way to characterize it. It's small. You know, it easily fits in one hand. It's not tiny. Um, You know, it's maybe like 10 inches from top to bottom. And she says, I want this. And my first thought is, no, I don't want to buy you this. I don't like this sort of thing. But it was innocuous when compared with the sorts of things that she could have picked out. It could have been far worse. It could be worse, as Boethius says. And so I said, okay, fine. I'll buy this for you. I get to name it, though. And I insisted on giving this completely undignified toy a dignified name. So I christened the bear Horace the Bear. Little blue Care Bear. Stuffed Care Bear. And it had this annoying wisp of hair on the top of its head. I cut it off as soon as we got home. And I gave Camilla, my four-year-old child, Horace the Care Bear. The only licensed character that my child owned. Now, when I gave her this, I thought to myself, it will not last. Like, a child's affections are fleeting, passing ephemeral. She will tire of this. She will find better stuffed toys. And she had better stuffed toys. She had these... Adorable, somewhat realistic-looking, you know, dogs and uh, horses and and so forth. And and my wife and I have always been choosy in buying realistic-looking toys for our children, realistic-looking stuffed animals. Uh, You know, not these zany-colored, big-eyed monstrosities. So I say, it won't last, Horace the Bear. And I I also said this based on some amount of proof that many other toys had come and gone. Been popular for a little while. Fallen into a state of ill repute in my child's heart. I was like, eh, okay. What I have learned from this is to not make Herodian promises again. But Horace the Bear didn't go away. Horace the Bear was the most cherished toy Camilla had up until that point in her life. And she kept the thing until she was five and until she was six. And all the while, my wife and I bought both of my children better stuffed animals. Horace the bear never fell out of favor. That child slept with Horace the bear When she was five, when she was six, when she was seven, she took the bear everywhere. I mean, when we 
went on a trip somewhere, Horus was the most important thing there was. Beatrice all the while had favored toys, but they sort of went in and out of her affections. Camilla kept Horus the bear when she was seven, when she was eight. And eventually I had a sort of begrudging respect for the toy because it had survived the test of time. I think that Camilla had the bear up until the time she was nine, at which point I began to worry that she would someday lose Horace the bear. And I was afraid of her losing the Horace, Horace the bear. And there was a time when I had worried that she wouldn't tire of the thing because I didn't like it. But then I grew to love Horace the bear. I started looking around on eBay, trying to, refi- trying to find a replacement Horace the bear in the event that, God forbid, anything ever happened to Horace the bear. And I, what's odd is that I found Horace's exact replica online, but he didn't look the same, not in the photos, not in eBay. She kept the child all throughout her ninth year of life, her tenth year of life. And eventually, I think, she outgrew stuffed toys, but Horace outlasted her waning affection for toys. I mean, she moved on to Jane Austen novels. She moved on to Jane Eyre, and she still got Horace the Bear. I say goodnight to Horace the Bear every night. Every night. Every night when we say our prayers. And when I say every night, I mean every night. When we finish saying our prayers, when we finish our formal prayers, every night, when I ask my children, what are you thankful for today? I ask, I ask Camilla, what are you thankful for today? And she says, I'm thankful that... And then she'll come up with like two or three things from the course of the day. I'm thankful that we had art class today. And I'm thankful that Daddy made us a tasty dinner. And I'm thankful that the Feast of the Annunciation is coming up soon. And she finishes every prayer of thanks with these words, and I'm thankful for Horace and for my family. Every time. It's a formulaic close to her prayers of thanks. She cannot complete her prayers of thanks without these words. Now, to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Horace was a purchased thing. He was purchased with... It was probably a dollar and 59 cents from the stuffed toy bin at Goodwill. Now, Horace the bear ultimately made my daughter happy and has given her joy and inspired gratitude in her heart for seven years, for more than seven years. But you're not going to convince me that I bought her happiness. Horace the bear is an invitation to happiness, which she can either accept or reject. And she has accepted the offer of happiness from the bear year after year after year. But money can't confirm in your heart the offer of happiness which any earthly thing might inspire. 
You must do that on your own. It cannot be acquired by way of material. Happiness comes only from the soul's right posture toward God. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.